We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is episode 153 of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. It's, it's Tuesday evening, 26th of June, 2018. A special edition, dear listener. We've got a special guest in the studio. But we'll start off with the usual, uh, the usual crowd, the usual panel. Scott, the Velvet Glove, welcome aboard again. Thank you very much, Trevor. I'm happy to be here, happy to be alive. And I'm enjoying a 150 Lashes for those that are keeping track on what beers I'm drinking. We're all, we're all enjoying it. The 12th man. Hi, everyone. Glad to be here as usual. And dear listener, over the course of the last 153 episodes, we have at different times referred to Deep Throat, who is our inside man on all sorts of goings-ons. And he's here with us in the studio. Welcome aboard, Deep Throat. Thank you, Fist. <laughs> Pleasure to be here. We will be calling on your expertise throughout the podcast at different times. So we'll mix you in amongst our usual potpourri of religious, political, newsy topics. Wonderful. I hope I can deliver. Do feel free to interrupt Mm. with your views on any of the things that we talk about. Don't just wait to be pointed to. Exactly. It's a free-for-all here. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Dear listener, we had a wonderful afternoon on Sunday where we gathered with a few people and... Had a few beers and a few pizzas, and it was a great little gathering. It of, was, it of was sort of patrons and just sort of the secular rationalist community of Brisbane. All twelve of us. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we were all there. It was very nice to put a uh, face to the names, though. Like when Jimmy Spud turned up, and he says, "I'm Jimmy Spud." I thought, "Oh wow, okay." Exactly. So, yeah. Yep. So Brett and Jimmy Spud were there, and uh, Kathy from Queensland Parents for Secular State School. She was there. Land and Hardbottom was there, of course. <laughs> that was a good one to get a face to the name. Deep Throat, you were there, of course. Anne and Frank and Cam from uh, the Bullshit Filter and all of his other podcasts. He was there with his wife Chrissy and young Fox and his mother Jan. So it was a really good afternoon and we really enjoyed it. It was a good afternoon. Next time we have one, dear listener, make sure you come along. The other interesting thing was that both Brett and Jimmy uh, listened to Cam's podcast. So, in fact, Brett had listened to Cam's podcast before he listened to ours. So (laughs) (laughs) turned into a bit of a meet-up for Cam's podcast. (laughs) Anyway, Cam, uh, we are going to talk about you a little bit later because you did... uh, you did complain about what we said about the United Nations, and we're going to we'll tackle that issue a bit later and provide a defence of your uh, attack on us or your allegations. So, anyway, now, Deep Throat. Yes. You're a member of Dying With Dignity. I am. Dying With Dignity. Um, in Queensland. Queensland, yes. Mm, and yep. they recently, well, yesterday, yesterday had an event. Yesterday afternoon. Tell us about the event. Yes, well, this is a forum to <clears throat> basically present the case for... Um, um, voluntary assisted dying uh, to, to parliamentarians. So it was organised by Dying with Dignity Queensland and the um, Clem Jones Trust. Um, and it was held at, the, at Parliament House um, in the Red Room. And I've never been in the Red Room, but that's where the Upper House of Queensland, the Legislative Council, uh, sat before it was um, gotten rid of. Mm. So it was... Fairly small, and so there's 
capacity was about 200 people. I reckon there was about 200 people there. It was quite full. It was quite well done. I didn't know if they'd get any parliamentarians actually coming because it's not a sitting period of time for the parliamentarians. But Mm. I think there was, I'm not sure the exact numbers, but it might have been as many as 14. Unfortunately, my back was towards uh, to the parliamentarians, so I didn't really get a good head count. But um, Was that a kind of protest? No, it wasn't a protest in a sense, but see... Keeping it back to them. Oh, keeping it back, my uh, protest by me. Yeah, well, it was was symbolic. (laughs) They all know Deep Throat. (laughs) (laughs) Of course they would. I was looking at the news report and it had vision of of the meeting and I saw you there in the middle. That's right. I stood out, didn't I? Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, they know who I am now. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. So it was organised by Diane Dingley, so it was by invitation only, so there wasn't any other groups there who were, had the opposing view. Mm. And that was deliberately done because they wanted to get the, their opinion across. And, and very often these sort of things, you do get um, individuals that just um, take over the meeting. So, so it was good from that point of view. For people that don't know, the Clem Jones Trust was um, set up by Clem Jones in his will to provide money to further the cause of voluntary assisted dying uh, and I think I th- so I, was it for that particular purpose or was it just a general one and the trustees decided this is a good sort of topic no it was definitely set up for that right he had a lot more money than five million dollars so this was just one of his causes ah, yeah okay. and I think it might have occurred um, I could be corrected on this that that his wife had a particularly poor death and right. that sort of spurred him on to to provide this money. One thing he did do, though, however, he left it to the trustees to decide how to um, further the cause. So he didn't put strict guidelines on it. And mm. I think there has been some criticism in the past of how they've gone about it. But I think I, I do respect them because they have taken the long view on this in terms of having a well-formulated plan. And um, part of that plan actually was not to start in, in Queensland because we've only got the, the one uh, house... Uh, with the Legislative Assembly, unlike other states in Australia which have both, that um, they thought that it would be easier to try other states first. And so they actually put money towards South Australia first. Really? Yeah. That's very yeah. strategic. It is very st- strategic, exactly, exactly. So they, they had a go at South Australia first, and we, we all know what happened there. It, it failed by one vote, and that was because the opposition allowed it to go caused the debate to go through to the, the very wee hours and the, the main member who was trying to push it then just got so tired that he started to <laughs> fumble with his words and, and then the speaker who had the casting vote said, oh, gee, and um, went against it. So, right. so it only failed there. And then they started putting some money into towards Victoria as well. And, of course, we know the outcome there. That, that all came to fruition, which was great. It's yeah. a clever tactic. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. So... So by doing that, they're going to, they've made it easier mm. to... to um... Because the Palaszczuk government has basically said, well, we'll just watch and see what happens in Victoria and we've got abortion law reform to deal with, first of all, and we're just now going to watch and see what happens in Victoria. Is yeah, right? exactly, exactly. Mm. So it's gone before the Parliamentary Health Committee. Now, it's not actually called the Parliamentary Health Committee and I sort of got the name here somewhere. It's the... Health, Communities, Disability Services and Domestic and Family Violence Prevention Committee. This gives you a bit of an idea that even though this committee might look at this, 
it doesn't mean they'll prioritise it, and uh, it could just slip down the down the list a bit. So, um, and one of the parliamentarians there was Joe Ann Miller, um, the one of the Labor members of Parliament, and she got up and made a point, which I think came out a bit of left field for a number of our members because we were thinking along the lines of this parliamentary inquiry, and she suggested that maybe it should be a select committee rather than this general uh, parliamentary committee. With a select committee, the members who are on the committee have just this one task. Mm. Once that's finished, then the, the, then the committee is finished as well. So, so that way it would be on the priority list automatically. Mm. Yeah. But you'd have to convince Palaszczuk to do that. And she sounds a little bit... Reticent, mm. exactly. I don't know why. Um, mm. We do know that it's now Labor policy because at the late last state election um, it got up, the, the proposal to, um, to uh, support um, voluntary assisted dying. So I don't know why she's against it. Well, she, she hasn't said she's against it. She just seems like almost delaying tactics. Yes. Mm. She's certainly dragging her heels on it. And it's got me buggered why she is, because if you look at the consistent polling across the, the state, we mirror what's happening in all the other states to the point that I think it's 60% in favour. It. It's more than that. It's more yeah. than that, yeah. So um, if you look across the board, it's, it's, it's probably pushing 80%. It's certainly over 70%. Yeah. And even in Catholic circles, it's way over 50%. It's possibly even 70% in mm. Catholics. It just... It depends on how the question's formulated, of course. But mm. it's, 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 it's huge in terms of um, community support. When you think of other things where it's just like 52% to 48%, and everyone says, oh, that's a fabulous result. Mm. Um, this is just massive. Mm. Uh, she's, she's some sort of Catholic, isn't she, I think? Or, or is it Greek yeah, Orthodox? Or yeah, well, if, if her family came from Poland, that's right. probably a fair bet. I guess mm. I don't know. I thought she was Catholic, but um, she's never actually pushed that part of her life before. No. Mm. She has... Um, but it might be part of the reason for her reticence. Mm. God alone knows why. Mm. 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 Now, the, I'm just looking at it. I've got a link to an article here, and in it, I'll just read part of it. Dying with Dignity Dignity President Joss Hall said she joined the campaign after watching her father, Merv, die a horrific death. He had cancer of the liver, which had spread, and he made it clear he wanted to be able to end his life, Ms Hall said. He did not want to continue on as he did. I will give you the gross version. He spent the last week of his life vomiting faeces, which was projectile. It was buckets full. It was unbelievable and atrocious. That is atrocious. That's terrible. No, no person should ever have to die like that. That's disgraceful. Absolutely disgraceful. Deep throat, amongst your many talents is you are a qualified medical practitioner. I am, I am retired. Yes. I am retired, yes. So a past life, but have, have uh, not that far past. It's, so this, it just sounds astounding to me about this sort of projectile vomiting of faeces. The, the body just... It's completely broken down and just sending well, stuff got, the wrong direction. I think she's just said that her, it was cancer of the bowel. I could be correct. Liver, I thought it was. Oh, liver. Yeah, yeah liver. Mm. Um, I guess if you had um, metastases and they were affecting the passage of material through the gut, 
mm. then it's only got one direction to go, and it's not down, it's up. So, right. so yeah, so yeah. it could it could be terrible like that. Exactly. Yeah. What a yeah. horrible way yeah. to finish. This is bloody awful, isn't it? Oh, mm. the reason a lot of people are involved with um, dying with dignity in Queensland is that they have these horrendous stories, and. It's not just that they feel bad; they also feel really angry that this, that they, their loved ones went through this. And uh, and this idea of dying with dignity has been around for many many years, for decades, and we've not seen any any action on it. And one of the comments at the forum was, um, if seventy eighty percent of people agree with this, and and it's equally a majority in religious groups then you reckon for politicians this would be electoral gold, you know? This is, this, is a, this is something they could just go, yes, you know, I've got all this support. It's not a hard one. So why? <laughs> well, you're assuming that politicians do what the electorate wants. Yes, bad assumption. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They'll just do what they want and just foist it on the electorate. That's so right. they will just mm. pass laws that match their own ideology yeah. and bugger the rest of the population and they'll yes. spin a story to, to, um, to try and stay in power. So nobody mentioned religion until yes. Everald Compton. Compton, that's right. So I was sitting there and listening to the speakers. They went through the politics... Well, I'm not sure where he ended up speaking, but they certainly went through Joss Hall talking and they went through the, a couple of people from the Clem Jones Trust and um, Curtis Pitt, the Speaker of the House, was there and uh, mm. he was quite supportive as well. He was in favour of it. But then Everall Compton came up. Now, he's an interesting fellow because he is one of the founding founders of the National Seniors Association of Australia... National Seniors Association. And, and he's an elder of the Uniting Church. He is. He is. So I was sitting there thinking, well, the elephant in the room is always the religion in this, in this argument. And here's a Christian gets up and says, well, the problem with all this and the why it's not going forward is because of religious organisations and the AMA. So the AMA got a bit of a serve as well from him. Right. And he's a very good speaker and, um, and says he's mine. So, yes, so I'm, I'm sort of... And the AMA has got some blame here? AMA has got some blame here. They've been always um, against uh, voluntary um, assisted dying. So and it, why is why that? Is that? Yeah. If, 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 as we said before, you know, the majority of the population is in favour of it and I assume that yes. the population of doctors would match the population of the general public? You would think, wouldn't you? Yes. Yeah. I, well, there's a couple of things here. I think it tends to be um, a more... There's more specialists than generalists, uh, well, not uh, primary care physicians in the, in the AMA. It also only represents, at the most, you could say a third, but it's pro- probably less than that. And so it's not representing all doctors. So whether there's mm. some sort of selection bias there, I don't know. Mm. What, would di- what I thought would be a more reasonable position would be to say this is something that should be uh, um, decided by our elected officials and just hold a neutral position. You know, that, that would be the easiest thing to do. Yes. I do hasten to add that if you look at the College of General Practitioners, the RSCGP, uh, who represents quite a lot of the practi- general practitioners, um, I, I'm not sure the numbers would be well over 90%, I, I reckon. They, they've just come out recently after the Victorian change in legislation and supported it. Now, they got a bit of flack from some of their members, uh, religious members, but... They came out and supported it. Right. So, yeah. 
So that group is in competition with the AMA? They're not in competition. They're a college, so they're actually a professional body in Ah, that sense. However, there is some blurring always in professional bodies, isn't it? So, um, so yes. Right, Okay. And, of course, the other side of the fence, I've got a quote here from the same article, is, however, Cherish Life Queensland said it was not the responsibility of a doctor to take the life of a human being. Executive Director Titian Johnson said it was incompatible with the injunction in the Hippocratic Oath to first do no harm. Yes. Got any thoughts on on the Hippocratic Oath? Um, I haven't thought about the Hippocratic Oath since, what was that, 1980 when I took the Hippocratic Oath. (laughs) Well, here's my question. Did you take the Hippocratic Oath or did you take some other oath or you just can't remember? I cannot remember. Right, okay. I cannot remember. I quickly looked up a Google search. And this comes from a, a site called gizmodo.com. So okay. I don't know how authoritative yeah, it is. It's very authoritative, doesn't it? <laughs> a name like Gizmodo. Um, <laughs> saying that doctors aren't actually bound by the Hippocratic Oath. And it says here that although scholars disagree about when it was written or even who wrote it, the general consensus is that the Hippocratic Oath was penned about 2,500 years ago, most commonly attributed to Hippocrates, the father of modern medicine. And they've got a quote here of what the Hippocratic Oath is. Okay. And tell me, I think you'd remember if you said this. Okay. All right. You with me here? You know you could have made this into a quiz. Don't you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I would have failed miserably. <laughs> All right, here it is. I swear by Apollo, the physician, and Asepius, and Hygieia, and Panacea, and all the gods and goddesses as my witness, that according to my ability and judgment I will keep this oath and this covenant, to teach them this art without fee or covenant. I will use those dietary regimes which will benefit my patients. I will do no harm or injustice to them. I will neither give a deadly drug to anybody who asked for it, nor will I make a suggestion to this effect. Similarly, I will not give a woman an abortive remedy. I will not use the knife. Whatever houses I may visit, I will remain free of sexual relations with both female and male persons, what I may see or hear in the course of treatment, I will keep to myself. Does that sound familiar at all? No. Right. But can I say, if that's what it was, <laughs> am I free to cherry pick <laughs> like the Bible readers? <laughs> yes. So this is the thing. Um, I will not use the knife. You know, mm. clearly. Any I've doctor. failed many times. Indeed. <laughs> yes. So uh, anyway, the article goes on to say that really no medical students actually take a Hippocratic oath anymore. Yeah. In fact, it's just an oath of just, I promise to do my best sort of thing. I'd say that's yeah. what I took. Yeah. Um, yeah. So mm. did you take an oath to become a teacher at all? No. <laughs> take an oath to become an accountant? No, all? I didn't. Mm. I had to take an oath. Did you? Yeah, yeah because you were admitted as a solicitor. Yeah, yeah. really? Yeah, what was your oath? I think just to... Promise not to have them. sexual relations with your <laughs> <Yeah>. clients. <laughs> I don't remember it, but uh, it was, you know, <clears throat> there was an oath along those lines. Uh-huh. Yeah, yep. so, mm. There we go. No, there was no oath or anything like that that we swore. Yeah. Legal profession, medical profession. Name one other profession that might require an oath. Mm. Politicians? Yes. Mm, politicians. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Mm. Right. Uh, speaking of politicians, mm. dear listener, 
our politicians have just passed some laws regarding tax and they've just given a massive tax break to the top to the top end and it's it, it's sailed through without much of a murmur in the community mm. nobody seems to care but you should care like you really should care this this is a big change and I've got a couple of uh, thoughts that came to mind. Well, a few things you need to know, dear listener. I was looking at the Courier-Mail and they were doing an analysis of uh, how the tax cuts would affect different uh, workers, different jobs. And they've lined up six different average Aussies and how the tax will apply to them. So they've given six different professions and how the tax is going to affect them. And here's the, here's the ones they've given. School teacher, on no, a mid-level school teacher on, on 93700 A labourer with the AUJ Masters on 95000 A Queensland police sergeant on 100000 a forklift driver on 145,000. Oh, for God's sake. In brackets, sake. working for BHP Coal. <laughs> a crane operator with, you know, earning 96,000. And a, uh, what's this other one here? A miner with BHP Coal of 149,000. So the Courier Mail, in describing how the tax is affecting the average Joe. It's just listening. <laughs> Six people who, who are no way. No way, they're no way representing the average Joe. No, but no. that's what they try and tell you, a school teacher, a labourer, a no, forklift no. driver. That, that figure for the school teacher to me sounds like the, a teacher on the top, um, top level, top it, pay it level. It does, it does. Yeah. After, it. And that only comes after nine years of service in the public school system. Yeah. I can tell you a first-year teacher probably be earning something like 60 and then it goes up in increments up to that top level, which is about what you quoted. It's just so sneaky to try and paint a picture of that's what the average worker is. So, oh, you know, the average worker is going to be saving these, these amounts and it's in their benefit. So, you know, there's that. So then there was a great article from the John Menadue blog which examined, well, what is, what, how much does the average Australian really earn? Because Scott Morrison, there we go, I managed to say it without swearing beforehand. Well done. Thank you. You know, when he was talking about his figures of how it was going to affect the average Australian, was using a figure of 85000 a year as the average mm. wage of an Australian. And I'm going to read bits from this John Menadou blog article. So uh, a casual glance at the news would have you thinking that the average Australian earns 85000 a year. If that sounds high to you, your instincts were bang on. An ordinary Australian earns way less than that. The 84600 a year is not plucked out of thin air. It comes from the Australian Bureau of Statistics full-time adult average weekly total earnings. According to the ABS, the average full-time wage with overtime and penalty rates was 84656 Sounds fair enough. But only 68% of workers are full-time, so you immediately discount the figure and the average drops to around 62000 
Secondly, the average is the mean rather than the median. And this is a crucial difference. The mean takes the total collective income earned and divides it by the number of earners. But because some people earn huge amounts, way more than the others, the mean is significantly skewed towards the upper end. As Saul Eslake put it, if Bill Gates walks into a bar full of ordinary Australians, the mean income of the room has suddenly gone up a lot, but the median (laughs) income hasn't changed at all. The median is more focused on actual people rather than abstract numbers. So if you essentially lined up every worker in Australia from the poorest paid to the best paid and walked along the line and stopped in the middle, that would give you the median wage. And according to Treasury, that's 55000 a year. Mm. And that is just eminently more sensible as a true indication of what the average wage is. It's just such a disingenuous, sneaky way of describing the average wage. I can see talk man's really right. It's downright dishonest, isn't it, really? Mm. It is. Because our political leaders are supposed to be working for us and they're supposed to be working in the interests of all Australians, not just, you know, people on a high high income. So it's just plain dishonest of the uh, Treasurer to try and fool us with that that sort of, um, you know... Yeah. Uh, The Grattan Institute calculates it a different way, looking at tax filers, and they said, looking at it that way, you could say their median is actually 44,000. And the whole point of all this is that people up to 90,000 can qualify for the full value of the government's low and middle income tax offset, when clearly they're actually in the top 20% of tax filers. Yes. So you've just got to be honest, if you're going to just give money to the high-income earners, just say it. But mm. those sorts of figures, plus groups like the Courier-Mail telling you that an f- average forklift operator earns 145000 Do you think there'll be a rush on um, people um, trying to get a forklift driver's ticket? Yeah. A rush at well, uh, forklift know, driver's school? But you know, it was from BHP, wasn't it, where they were being employed? Yeah, for the yeah. forklift one, he's gone for uh, BHP. Yep. Exactly. So they're going to have to live out the back of Burke mm. and they're going to fly in, fly out, and that's how they're going to earn 145 grand a year. It still sounds too high, though, doesn't it, for a forklift it, it, driver? It could, it, <clears throat> it could be. On all sorts of penalty rates and who knows what, yeah. maybe. Yeah. And it, underground, you know, driving a forklift underground, well, there you go. It could be. It'd be anything like that. I mean, you just can't trust anything you read. It's no, no. Well, not from the Murdoch press, you can't. No, yeah, yeah. you know, and you know, the, the the way the government has manipulated the numbers is even more disgraceful because Morrison should know what the medium was, but he hasn't. Mm. He's completely ignored that. And well, he too, would know, wouldn't he? He, he would. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 it's a ploy. And you know, I know the government likes to point to the fact that high-income earners pay a higher rate of tax, therefore they're going to end up with pocketing more money. Agreed. I understand that argument. The way to diffuse that argument is to put all your savings and you increase the tax-free threshold so everyone from millionaire to male boy gets exactly the same amount of money. But we're going to need this money. Like, tax is the price you pay for civilization. I agree. We're going to need roads and schools and police and all the other stuff, and at some <clears> point they're going to say oh, we don't have enough money to pay. We'll just have to cut back on these services. Mm. 
that's how it's going. I agree. Done. I agree, and I think that the you know the, the <coughs> second lot of the second last no the the last and the second last lot of income tax cuts under the Howard administration were probably a step too far. You know, they were probably too much to hand out to people, and they were copied by Rudolph so he could defuse the whole situation going into the election. But it wasn't that the whole thing about this. It's the problem is because they're trying to buy. Their next term in parliament. Of course, that's what they're doing. Yeah, they're buying yeah. their next term, term not, in parliament. It's not good for the country. No, it's not. Mm. It's not. You know, and I think they're just trying to look after their their voter base, and, and they're just neoliberal um, crazies yeah, who are not interested in anything yeah. with any. They don't have any social conscience at all. I agree, but that voter base is only a fairly narrow band of people out there in the community. As we've seen, that's just been demonstrated by the numbers well, of people that are... And, and they'll fool the rest. So well, they'll look they can, after their voter base and then they'll fool the rest. Absolutely, they'll try. Yeah. So someone earning 40000 a year is going to get a tax cut of $455. Well, someone on 200000 is going to get a tax cut of 7255 So mm. essentially just yeah. given $7,000 to people who are already earning a shitload of money. It's staggering, isn't it? Mm. Some might say that, of course, someone on 200000 will get a bigger cut. After all, they pay more tax, which is what you just said as the argument that people raised, Scott. But while someone on 200000 earns five times more than someone on 40000 their, ta- their tax cut will be 16 times higher. Hmm. It's so unfair. Yeah. Do you think it might work against them at the next election? Because this will... Um, Scott Morrison throwing out figures like this will create an awful lot of um, resentment in people that are earning what is the the genuine sort of media. Well, well you've got to, you're ignoring the aspirations of people who can all aspire <laughs> to earn $200,000 a year. But he's, he's doing a bit of a dangerous game because surely these people know what they earn and when they see that they must realise that they're not in that category. So it's a little bit of a dangerous game he's playing because he's, he's not truly fooling most of the people. People will swallow it. It's, mm. it's like with healthcare. Obamacare in America was designed for poor people who couldn't get healthcare and those very people voted against it because they were convinced by the propaganda that they should. And the same will happen here because people will read the Courier Mail and go, oh, well, the average Aussie uh, is, is pays less tax. That's a good thing. I'll, I'll, I'll have yeah, less tax to pay. I'll have more money in my pocket. I'm going to vote for Liberals. Without, without somebody doing a Bernie Sanders, what, what we need in the Labor Party is more of a Bernie Sanders-type mm. character to say, don't be ashamed of saying that rich people need, need to pay some tax more than the poor people, because we need civilization. Yes, we need services. We need a Bernie Sanders-style approach to the argument, whereas what the current Labor Party has done is a bit of a dirty sort of smear of Turnbull saying, oh, you're rich, you're just doing it because you're rich and you'll get a tax cut yourself, which was a silly argument. A very sounds, silly argument. But, um, but, yeah, we need a sort of a Bernie Sanders-style rewriting of things to say, hang on a minute, that's OK for people to pay tax. They should be. That's what it's all about. Mm. Yeah, provided I, a society that has enabled them to earn this money mm. so they can contribute. Should we have not some sort of tax, uh, tax declaration that we, people have pride in how much tax they pay? So the more tax you pay, the, yeah. more, you know, the, the better 
you, your um, position in society appears. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, or perhaps we need some way of measuring the, the, the overall benefit that accrues to people with businesses that come mm. from the taxes of all taxpayers to build infrastructure, which they directly benefit from. Mm. So perhaps we, we need some, some way of measuring the benefit to these people because you hear rich people, mm. or at least I've heard some rich people say, why does the government take so much of my money? Mm. You know, because they they don't all recognise that uh, there is a social contract, and mm. as as high earners, they're uh, they're obliged to pay a, a higher share. Yeah, I mean, you're, take for example the court system. Your average person doesn't need or use or rely on the court system, but if you are in business and you're doing deals and contracts, then it's the implicit threat of court action that keeps the whole thing going and even if they don't end up in court the fact that there's one there that functions and operates Mm. allows those deals and transactions to go ahead smoothly so it's that sort of thing which works silently for their benefit which they should pay for even if they're not using the court Mm. in an actual in an actual action whereas Mm. your average joe really doesn't rely on the court Mm. And in fact, a, a lot of people who who are not in business themselves will probably never see the inside of a court, True. but they still contribute to the cost of it. Yes, mm. there we go. So that's the sort of thing that happens. Yeah. Did you guys see the picture of Melania Trump wearing the jacket? Oh yes, I did. Yes. Yeah. 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 So she's getting onto a plane to head to concentration camp for brown people with a jacket that says, I really don't care, do you? Not too bright. Not too bright at all. Just amazing. <laughs> the disconnect. Yes. <laughs> you reckon well, someone would have taken her aside and said, hey, you know. And she wore it on the way home too, apparently. Did she? Yeah. Oh, I mean, she would have, it, somebody would have mentioned it to her by then, you know, yeah. that some people were making comments about it. But then she... Put it straight back on again and yeah. for the return trip. Yeah. You and we both follow um, 12th man, um, Mrs. Betty Bowers, America's Best yeah, Christian. she's good. Yeah, she's very good. Yeah, yeah so I'm they, reading her right now. They yeah. had a thing on their Facebook page and her comment was, I find this shocking that Melania wore a $39 jacket. <laughs> <laughs> Still on America. Sarah Huckabee Sanders She's the one who stands up at these briefings for the press corps in the White House, which is an unusual situation in itself, isn't it, where you've got a sort of an unelected spokesperson who basically gives forth on what the government is doing and why it's doing it, and we don't have anything similar to that, do we? No, it's no, very we weird, the American yeah. system. Our, very our weird. politicians themselves have to explain they're their the actions. Ones that, we're the one, they're the ones that front the cameras. Yeah. yeah. And so I think that would be better if the Americans rolled out their Treasury Secretary to explain what's happening, but they've gone through this one person it to is. be the mouthpiece for the entire government, which makes absolutely no sense. Yeah, and it's a very strange <clears> range. <throat> but anyway, she's pretty awful in the way that she will just with a straight face, repeat all of the lies and craziness of the Trump White House without batting an eyelid and, and sort of really fighting back against any accusations from the, from, the, from the press that things aren't good. And so she's not liked by a lot of people in America. And anyway, 
uh, with her family. She went to a restaurant recently and the proprietor of the restaurant kicked her out. said, you're just seeing you on TV. I know what you're doing. <laughs> I'm not feeding you. Get out of my restaurant. Was she not? A, was she ejected before ordering? Was she? Yeah, I think. Uh, I think she managed to get in, and then they recognised her. Mm. They said, "No, we're not serving you. You can. You can go." So, twelfth man. Got any opinions on that? Uh, I'm in two minds about it, to be honest, because uh, you know. She she was not acting in her official capacity in the restaurant. She was just going for a meal. I don't know. I mean, what about the um, the cake shop argument where I said uh, <laughs> that, you know, the cake shop proprietor should be at liberty to refuse service if he feels like it. I mean, not, not on the basis, obviously, of, you know, skin colour, things like that, but if someone was behaving obnoxiously in his cake shop, Surely he should be at liberty to ask the person to leave. Now, I, d- I don't believe she was acting inappropriately in any way, so mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that she, you know, it was justified to kick her out. She was only there for a meal. Yes. She wasn't there to tell lies. Because <laughs> I've been quite firm on the need for shopkeepers to, to serve whoever comes into the shop. You have. Yeah, I have been. But and I you've can, been very consistent up till now. <laughs> I have. And I, here we go. I'm going to say that the shopkeeper is within their rights on this occasion. No, I disagree and, with you. I think and I'm going to attempt to do so without exposing a conflict no, in my thinking. I, I, I disagree with you. I do think that um, I do think that they should have been forced to feed her because she wasn't there in a professional capacity. She walked in to feed to feed herself and her family, and she got kicked out. I don't think that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, someone is this, this going to be three against one yeah. at this point? Is it? Someone in America has to do the job for Donald Trump because he is the president. All right. Now you might not agree with what he's saying, okay? But he, she's doing the job. All right. So let me get so, this. <laughs> so you're with them, Detroit, and, yeah. and twelfth man. You're you're saying that she should have been served. Uh I, th- I think so long as she wasn't behaving badly, mm-hmm. um, yeah, she went in just to buy a meal, not mm-hmm. to discuss politics or have a debate. Or... Okay, I'll just give you one other example before I give my <laughs> theory here. So you've been, you, you worked in a restaurant and you were sacked by your boss, you know, just a bad man, and you uh, accused you unfairly of all sorts of things that you didn't do. So you then open up a little snack bar or a cafe down the road, and he comes in to be served, and you want to say, no, I don't, I'm not going to serve you. You're a terrible man. You accuse me of all these things. I'm not serving you. Should, should he have to serve? Or, or, you know, the girl who was horrible to you at school, who was just a complete bitch to you, you know, one girl to another girl sort of thing. I'm talking female now. Was, was just hated or ostracised or given a really awful time at school by another gang of girls and the gang leader turns up at her restaurant, wants to be served, can that person say, no, I'm not serving you. You were terrible to me when I was at high school. Bugger off. Uh, I I think there is a little bit of a distinction here. I know you go, (laughs) get me for this one, but uh, there is a distinction where it's become to a personal level. Mm. Now, you might say that's a personal thing when she is working in a a capacity for someone else Mm -hmm. and... It's her job to lie. 
mm-hmm. as what terrible a- as that may be. But she hasn't personally uh, attacked uh, another person. Um, so I think there is a distinction. What about the colour purple method of revenge? The colour purple method? You haven't seen the movie? No. no. Oh, yes, I've seen There's the movie. There's a scene where the, uh, the, the, the um, African-American woman was, was asked to fetch a, a drink or something or some soup or something for the master and she had, um, you know, she, she wanted to get revenge but she didn't quite know how to do it so she went to fetch the drink and on the way back to, before serving it, she spat in it and stirred it in, right? right? Yeah. And then just gave it to him. Right. Didn't say a word after that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Of course, you're not going to do that in a no, restaurant, are you? You're not going to do that, no. Well, discrimination is normally requires a, a, a ground of discrimination a type of discrimination and an area of activity, which I'll get into. This, I'm just looking at our Queensland Anti-Discrimination Act. And the key difference here is that she was not refused service because she was a member of a group. She was just refused service because of who she is. So unfair, well, discrimination, I believe, is unfair when you discriminate against somebody because they're a member of a group. And it's fair if you discriminate because of their individual actions. So this person was not discriminating against all Republicans or all White House staff or all, because it was in Washington presumably and was often serving people, but just went, nope, you've crossed a line in your behaviour. I'm not serving you because you're you, not because you're a member of a group. Does that make this then acceptable? That wasn't my reading, to be honest. I, I read a little bit of an article on, the, on I think, the ABC website about it. I got the feeling that the proprietor was very much against the Republicans as a group, uh, particularly the Trump Republicans. And Let, Let's, just for the purposes of discussion, assume that this proprietor has served heaps of Republicans and heaps of White House staff and just took offence to Huckabee as being a, just a terrible person. Yeah, I, I don't think it was just Huckabee. I think if any other prominent but, member of but, the administration had walked we in... We have no other knowledge of anybody else being refused service at that restaurant. So let's just, for the sake of an argument, say it was just because this person took a particular dislike to the way that Huckabee lies and distorts the truth. So there may be lots of Republicans with exactly the same views or even more extreme going into that restaurant, but the restaurant owner doesn't know that they're like that. So the only difference between them and mm. Huckabee is that they know what she says because she said it out with her megaphone. Maybe. <laughs> and they know her face because she's they on know TV her face. regularly. So, yeah. <laughs> so that, why, do you, so that, why that, do you think it's okay? Just, uh, because I think discrimination becomes unfair when you tarnish somebody because they're a member of a group. And she's been tarnished because of the personal knowledge that this person has of her. So I think you should pay a price for poor behaviour that's personally known to a proprietor who can say, no, I'm not going to serve you. Have I swayed anybody? I don't think you have swayed me. I I understand where you're coming from and I can see your argument, but I do think that she would be refused entry simply because she was the press secretary of the United States president. And 
I would be surprised if this guy didn't knock back the press secretary from the George W. Bush administration too. You know, it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest if, if, the, if the guy didn't knock back the, anyone from the Republican side. She yeah, is part of the group. Yeah, She's absolutely. the Republican group. But to, as, as best we know... It, this person, Huckabee, was not denied service because she's a Republican or because she works in the White House as a Republican. It was just because she is who she is, who the proprietor didn't like because of the way that she's, the proprietor saw this person behaving. Yeah, I, I still think she's, you know, she's towing the party line, even if that's the Trump line. Mm. So um, you're discriminating based on... On that, okay. and um, you know, I mean, he did get all those votes. So, yeah. <laughs> right, <on. laughs> well, there we go. So, anyway, in Australia, um, it would not be un- well in Queensland. Anyway, I don't think it would be a breach of the Anti Discrimination Act because, on the facts that I've outlined, I don't think it was discrimination on the basis of. Well, maybe political belief or activity. Yeah. See, that's what I thought. I thought to myself that she's failed, that she was discriminated against because of her political beliefs and activities, and therefore that would be discriminatory. Yeah, I think it was the association with Trump. I think Trump has really galvanised um, a really polarised uh, opinion in, <clears throat> in America. And people are saying now that there's likely to be a, an increased turnout at the what they call the midterm elections, mm-hmm. simply Coming because people November. are so so angry at Trump personally. And Huckabee Sanders is very closely um, associated with Trump, and I think that was the the factor that really. Um, Can I draw on that? an analogy here, like how I think about like religion and that? If I disagree with a religious view or, or in that, I, I tend to think of it in terms of the organisation, of the ideology, and not the person in, who holds that. So mm-hmm. I think there's got to be that separation between the person and, um, and, and ideology when you're treating them on a one-to-one basis. Right. See, I could be running a restaurant and decide, look, uh, I, I couldn't refuse service to Christians, but Lyle Shelton could walk in and I could say, you are conducting yourself in a way that I just disagree with and you have, you know, name all sorts of things that he's done and say, I'm happy to serve Christians, I'm just not happy to serve you. Get out. Well, so I, I would, would that be it, okay? No, I'd treat it in a different way. I would, I would you know, exercise my freedom of speech, free, mm. freedom of speech mm. and tell him... Well, I think, because yeah. it's one-on-one. You, you would, but if I wanted to do that, would I, should I be stopped? Should no, you be stopped because, from because not I'm, serving I'm, him? Yeah, absolutely, you should be stopped from not serving him, but, but, but you I, shouldn't be stopped from telling him what you think of him. But I've clearly yeah. said, look, I'm happy, to, I'm happy to serve Christians. In mm. fact, are you a Christian? Great, I'll serve you. I'll serve you, I'll serve you. But you're Lyle Shelton, I'm not serving you. I should be able to say that. No, I don't think so. No. Because I'm not discriminating because he's Christian. No, you're discriminating him because he's the head of the ACL. Yeah, and, and the activities that he does and the way he does them. Yeah. But I'm not discriminating because of he's, he's a Christian. I'm discriminating and on the way he conducts himself. After all the material Lyle Shelton's provided for this podcast, yeah. you, you, would, <laughs> you would treat him like that. That's, that's very shabby. Very, very shabby. Very ungrateful of me. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But don't... don't 
that's not convincing at all. No, no, I don't think it is. I think no. you've, I think you'd have to be you'd be forced to serve him. But I do think you should be able to tell him exactly what you think of him, and then you could say to him afterwards, "Do you still want to eat here or not?" Oh. You know. Yes, that's that's how I see it too. I'd have to serve Lyle Sheldon, you're saying? Absolutely, you should, yes. yes. Mm. At least a bucket of chips or something. Buy him trans fats. Well, there we go, we've swung around. I'm running a shop. I'm saying shopkeepers have the right not to serve yeah. somebody and the 12th man is now saying that they should be served. Well, okay. There you go, dear listener, if you've been... If Lyle Sheldon walks into your wedding cake shop and asks for a specifically Christian message, I don't think you should have to write it first. Okay. There you go. Yeah, I've got that. Okay. I disagree with you, Paul. <laughs> right. Um, dear listener, we had a great uh, drinks, as we've mentioned already, on Sunday, and one of the attendees was Cameron Riley, who's got his podcast, The Bullshit Filter and The Life of Caesar and The Renaissance Times and a whole bunch of other things. I don't know how he finds the time to get them all done. But anyway... He had mentioned that he wasn't happy with our discussion on the UN. And you'll remember last week we talked about the fact that Trump has told um, the UN that he's pulling the US out of the, the Human Rights Committee, which is a committee within the UN. And we said, well, of all the things he's done, that's not the worst. And... We generally said, look, the United Nations has some uses and staying in there to talk is okay. And, but, you know, pulling out of the committee is no big deal. In fact, well, you two were quite clear in saying that you'd expect the US to stay in to the UN General Assembly, at least, and that's a good idea and it's got good value, and that um, we all sort of agreed that pulling out of that committee was neither here nor there that much. So anyway, um, on Cam's podcast that he released on Monday, he had this to say, and I'll play a little clip. But uh, judging by the level of Ray jokes at the podcast meetup I was at yesterday, uh, right. Trevor Bell's podcast, hey, Trevor, I invited Trevor to come on the show today um, to so I could castigate him and his co-hosts for their uh, misunderstandings of what the purpose of the United Nations is. But he ah. said, can't, too busy. But uh, shout out to Trevor. Lovely meet up with uh, him and some of his listeners and our listeners uh, yesterday for a few beers. Anyway, so here's the gist of what Cameron then wanted to say, which was that um, the UN General Assembly was created by Roosevelt to promote discussion to avoid war. It's flawed, but it's helped pre prevent war since 1945, although nuclear weapons also played a big role in preventing war. There are nations in the UN that we, are, uh, that we don't like, but that's just how democracies work. You have bad people in every democracy. Their view of human rights differs to ours. Does that mean we are right? What next? Leave the General Assembly? It's not perfect, but that's how... FDR set up the United Nations. So, once again, I'll probably replay the clip at the end of this podcast so people can really listen to what we said. But we did say that, yeah, drop out of the committee, who cares? Uh, stay in the UN, good idea. Because talking, we agree, is good. It's preferable um, to throwing rocks at one another. Yeah. yeah. So I think, Cameron, you misunderstood how far we were going there. But... 
just for the purposes of playing devil's advocate. (laughs) (laughs) Really, if the US just dropped out of the UN General Assembly, realistically, would it make any difference in the way the world operates? It would make a difference financially to the UN because they're the largest single contributor, I think. Yeah, but then the UN would would adjust everyone else's subscription dues and that sort of thing to make. Assuming up, they, they pay. It. Well, yeah, but they would they would then charge all of us a higher rate to be involved in the UN, so to make up for the shortfall mm. that the Yanks had left by leaving. Um, my point is, like, I agree. Discussion is good, but. Really, is the UN the best place to have a discussion? Well, I think it's the only place we've got to have a discussion right now. It's the only it's the only forum that's available to the to the international community to have these discussions. Well, there's other forums like what? what? The telephone. Like yeah, you can, that, you can a, get a, on the phone yeah, and a, you can talk is, to the people you need to talk to. You've, we've got emb- the US yeah. has got embassies all over the world, yeah. diplomats, all paid, all having meetings with the local governments. Mm. If they want to discuss and reach agreement with France, Australia, whoever, they can have a direct discussion with them and come to an agreement. Realistically, what happens is that the US pays no attention to 75% of the members of the UN, and there's really only the top 25 most powerful countries that that they would pay any attention to at all. Even then, they don't pay any attention. So it's, it's not... So my point is... As a place to talk and communicate, you know, FDR, when he set it up, and Cam, just because he set it up back then, you know, doesn't mean we have to keep going with it if circumstances change and technology changes and and institutions change, it may mean that we need to change our behaviour as well. So just because that's how we set it up doesn't mean we have to stick with it forever. Mm. But there are other ways of communicating that are more effective and yeah, but that assumes you've got pretty good bilateral nego- uh, uh, relations with those two nations. Mm. So the, the North, well, look, North Korea and the United States do not have a diplomatic embassy in either country, but they are both members of the United Nations. So but, the, but did can, they need the United Nations for Donald Trump to ring up Kim Jong-un and say, let's have a meeting? Like they didn't, well, they was, didn't do that through the United Nations. No, that was they did done that through direct mm, communication. That was done via the South and South. Korean president in that time. There you go. Turned up with a gigantic letter for him. That helps my point. But surely there's some inherent value in having a public forum where people or representatives have to front up in person and publicly, you know, with cameras on them and microphones, say what their government's position is. There's a disadvantage in it being public. Well, not everything's public, but the fact that there is a public forum has some Perhaps that's actually a disadvantage. Because if you're wanting to negotiate with people, with with key people, but another hundred people are listening in, that could influence and deter honest conversation between people. So the fact that it's public could actually make negotiations more difficult. So if you really wanted to strike a deal or a negotiation with somebody... You just have the people you want to talk to, and 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 even then you might approach them individually and work out a deal, and then once you've got the rough um, outline of a broad agreement for several people, you then bring them all together. But but conducting a negotiation in front of people who well, I like, and here's an example I'm going to give: is the UN is like a Facebook page. 
full of trolls who were just interfering <laughs> with honest debate. And, and you could well argue that there are factions and trolls within the UN who you know are just going to get on and disagree with whatever you say, and they're actually going to disrupt an honest debate. I mean, is that a reasonable analogy? Um, I think you can do both, walk and chew gum at the same time. So there's no reason you can't do both of those methods. And I wanted, I'd like to bring up the principle that's actually in the United States and in our government, in, um, in uh, federalism, in terms of that the principle of the Senate where you have equal numbers from each state and it's the same principle, I think, in the Senate in the United States where you have equal numbers. I'm, I'm, not, I'm a bit hazy on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the idea is that you have a forum where strong members and powerful members can't overwhelm discussion and you can be on an equal basis. And that's very important. That's what the United Nations provides. So I know you're talking about North Korea, but what about the Solomon Islands? Do you think <laughs> the Solomon Islands guy could rig up and say, oh, I speak to the President of the United States? He won't get very far. It just won't happen. But in, in the forum of the United Nations... Well, well, I was talking about the US leaving the UN, not Solomon Islands. Yeah, well, I'm not the same thing. But, but, but it works because, the other way. Because, no, because the US can pick up the phone and speak to whoever it wants to, but the Solomon Islands can't. Yes, but that's why, well, well, that's why I'm, yeah. I'm debating the fact that the US needs to stay in. Yeah, it, so it can just be pestered a, by the Solomon Islands. <laughs> no, it's not being pestered. It's giving... That's how they view it. Yeah. Well, the trouble is you get a lot of angry countries around the world if they can't have their, <laughs> their say. Mm. Well, I mean, I think... Having their say doesn't pe- stop them from being angry. <laughs> no. They, in fact, no. might make them more angry. I think they should be able to be pestered because you've got to have... You've got to have a forum that enables the very wealthy large countries to be kicked around by the smaller countries, you know, and yes, or they're, at least, going to ignore, they're going to ignore them, but at least they've got a forum that they can stand yeah. up and say, no, this is wrong. That's right. And even the big powerful countries have to stand there publicly and hear it. Yes. You know and what the, I mean? And the people of the Solomons goes, look at the old guy, go, go, go for it. Yeah. And they get a little bit cathartic sort of <laughs> feeling about it and won't get up and... Well, they, they, you know, they, they can't do anything except come to yeah. us for building an undersea oh. um, yeah, communication North Korea might cable. give them a nuke or something. Well, that's right. <laughs> if the debate has been bastardised by groups who are just going to oppose without reason or any move by the United States, for example, then... The complaints by the genuine complaints by others sort of lose weight, don't they? So, it's. I think it's just a, a venue that's lost any credibility, and it doesn't mm. achieve anything. Oh, by the way, just that the the committee that they pulled out of the Human Rights Council, it only started in two thousand six. So, mm. that particular. So, you know. It's, it's not a, just a big deal, baby really. committee that's yes. never been around long, so no big deal. But yeah, just back to the UN General Assembly. I, th- you know, I think it's arguable that having to debate in an open forum with all sorts of people actually deters from an honest discussion. Not convinced. I'm not either. No, I think it has value. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and obviously not all discussions will take place mm. in the open forum. There are obviously mm. certain things that have to be negotiated privately and perhaps secretly, but it still has that value. And I think it, 
you know, it projects to the world, the, you know, the idea that, yes, every country does have a right to have their, their voice heard. Exactly. Look, I agree with you. I was just playing devil's advocate. Oh, <laughs> <You know. laughs> oh that <We're> killed it. <laughs> So just stay in there, but everybody realise nothing happens, and they just when they really want to do something, they'll pick up the phone and speak directly to France or Germany or, exactly. or whatever. And it's just it's just a show to keep. But the people the people need the show. Yes, it's just a fiction to keep the masses yeah. happy. Yeah. Well, we know it needs reform, though. Obviously, the Security Council, for one, uh, mm. needs badly needs some reform because. Important things often don't happen because some country doesn't veto them. They'll veto it. Yeah. Mm. yeah. The other thing I want the UN is that if you really wanted to fix world poverty and climate change in the one go, the simple solution you're sitting down, dear listener, is you've got to empower women to control their fertility, and once you mm. do that, all sorts of great things happen in terms of poverty and or reduction of poverty and you'll have less people, which is the best thing you can but do you know, for climate do change. Um, um, to get, to get um, women to decrease their fertility, you educate them. Indeed. And how do you do that when the Vatican is walking the halls of the UN and, and telling all of its members that they should have nothing to do with any program that seeks to provide any sort of fertility control treatments in developing countries? So it's shameful that the Vatican gets to walk it's, the corridors of power in the UN. It's not and, only the Vatican, the, the Trump administration and, uh, and I think the Bush administration well, perhaps prior to that had withdrawn US funding from programs that, um, what was it, uh, supplied terminations, was it? I'm not, sh- I'm not sure the detail, but there was something. Mm-hmm. Um, supplied terminations and also um, family planning. Well, you know, contraception. Yeah. Yeah. They had been um, they had been part of the U.S. Um, foreign aid program for donkey's years, and it got pulled out. Right. You know. And that was as a result of conservative Christian activism, wasn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so let's uh, good on you, Cam. Shout out to Cam, and there's a link to the episode in the show notes. So um, hop on over and listen to Cam as he castigates us, and you can subscribe and. It seems like everybody who listens to this show listens to his anyway, or did before him. So, <laughs> interesting guy, Cam. Um, he's had some ups and downs in his life, and uh, he, you know, he had a difficult time once. And uh, he was he was at the Dole queue, and he was having to explain um, his profession as he was lining up. And uh, he managed to record um, the conversation. I've, I've got it here, so, so here it is. Next occupation. Stand-up philosopher. What? Stand-up philosopher. I coalesce the vapor of human experience into a viable and logical comprehension. Oh, a bullshit artist. (laughs) Did you bullshit last week? No. Did you try to bullshit last week? Yes. Yes, the the bullshit filter aptly named. Cathy <laughs> <laughs> from Queensland Parents for Secular State Schools. Part of our discussion was a little bit about Jordan Peterson and Deep Throat. Have you ever listened to any Jordan Peterson? Uh, I did listen to the first encounter he had with um, 
Sam Harris. Right. And that was terribly frustrating because the, yep. they just couldn't go forward. Um, Sam Harris wanted definitions and Pearson was just ignoring yeah. any attempt to define yeah. basic terms. It's ironic that a guy who burst onto the scene because he wasn't happy about um, being required to use other pronouns at the university, so he sort of... His desire to stick to his version of English was his sort of reason for bursting onto the scene. And yet in all of these subsequent interviews, he just redefines things the way he wants to. And he's a very difficult guy to follow. And you think you've got an idea of what he's saying, but then he, then he just makes his own definition of God or spiritual or whatever he's talking about and throws everything out. So mm-hmm. anyway... Um, uh, Kathy from Queensland Parents for Secular State Schools said there's an expression for what I was describing because Peterson tends to burst forth with a whole bunch of rapid-fire arguments all in a row very quickly, and it's very difficult for the person responding to have to deal with each and every one of the many things he's said. And she said there's an expression for that. She looked it up and told me later it's called gish gallop. Oh, goodness, haven't heard of that one. Yes, a gish gallop. Um, also known as proof by verbosity, is the fallacious debate tactic of drowning your opponent in a flood of individually weak arguments in order to prevent rebuttal of the whole argument. Uh, the gish gallop is a belt-fed version of the spot fallacy, and it's unreasonable for anyone to have a well-composed answer immediately available to every argument present in the gallop, and it's named after a creationist called Dwayne Gish, who often abused it. And it's my complaint about Jordan Peterson anyway, but uh, he tends to do that in his arguments, I think. And I know Squeaky Wheel thinks more highly of him, but I have a link to a debate between um, Peterson and Matt Delahunty, and if you can get through that and still think Peterson is worthwhile, then you're better than me. So anyway, that's all on the website. Yeah, we've got you here, (laughs) deep throat. (laughs) Yes. And uh, we're going to get on to um, private health insurance. But beforehand, could you please tell your mother Teresa's story? Oh, okay. Well, in my past life, I spent a couple of years in India working in a hospital for refugees. And we had a really brilliant group of doctors there. And one of them, um, who was a gold medalist at the university and uh, has gone on to great things, uh, decided that she would go down to Calcutta um, and help out with Mother Teresa because it sounded like she needed a bit of help. Mm -hmm. So she trundled off and we didn't expect to see her again. And then within, I forget exactly, but something like three months, she was back, totally disgusted because um, there was epidemics of meningococcus um, going at the time. In fact, I treated, I went through a few of those epidemics where I was. And Mother Teresa's response to that was to give them love. Now, meningococcus can, uh, can be treated with penicillin, very effective, just plain, ordinary, straight penicillin. And she had access to, to money, really. She had access, she had fame, she had access to people who would give her money. And in India, penicillin was dirt cheap. It really was not very expensive at all, especially not for someone like Mother Teresa. So all she had to do was get hold of penicillin and treat her, mm-hmm. treat these kids, and they were mostly kids. And uh, she wasn't doing it. And uh, my colleague, 
tried to make changes and um, it just wasn't, she just wasn't getting anywhere so she gave up and came back to us which was, which was a great boon to us but um, yeah so that's my story about Mother Teresa. It's amazing yeah. that she's still so well thought of by so many people. And she is. And yeah. I, I look in my, in my in my line of work. I sometimes mention to people because I come ac- across quite a few people from traditionally Catholic countries, and um, the name Mother Teresa sometimes pops up. And I say, so what do you, you know? What do you think of her? And you know, normally people say, oh, she was wonderful, wasn't she? She was she was a true saint. And I say, well, you do know, don't you, that all she did was take people off the streets who were perhaps dying or, you know, afflicted by some terrible malady and just give them a different place to die, basically. Exactly, exactly. Mm. Yeah, no, it's... uh... When she could have, as you said, deep throat, she had access to millions. Yeah. And she could have built very well-equipped clinics or hospitals and instead she just funneled most of the money to the Vatican Bank. Well, yes. it was in. It was under her, whatever sisters of charity, wasn't it? Isn't that what she sisters was of charity? Yeah. Um, sisters of mercy. Mercy. Sisters of no. mercy was no. it? Maybe the guys from the mother. The sisters of mercy. I don't know which one. Yeah, which sisters. Yeah, one of the sisters one of, the of something sisters. or other. Sisters of vengeance. Anyway, they set up. I forget how many. Uh, what do you call it? A nunnery? What are the? Is it a nunnery or is it something else? Where are the nuns? A convent. Mm. They set up. I think a dozen convents around the planet, all under her name, when she could have built brilliant hospitals in Calcutta yes. with that sort of money. Yes. And she could have staffed them and they could have had, they could have been handing out free health care to the poor, but she decided against that. Yes. She made yes. very poor choices with all that money at her disposal. Absolutely she yes. did. You know. And there was a, um, I forget what the name of it is, but it's on YouTube. It's a Christopher Hitchens documentary on her. Mm. And he does not hold back. And he really lets go at her. And after watching that, I can understand why. Well, off the air, I probably um, let fly a bit too with Mother Teresa. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, she was no Mother Teresa, Mother mm. Teresa. Mm. She was evil, nasty woman, wasn't she? Mm. Right. She meant well. Mm. She didn't mean well. <laughs> Turning up with meningeal cockle and giving paracetamol, for yeah. God's sake. Mm. Private health insurance. Yeah, it makes me sick. Right. <laughs> uh, let's talk about private health insurance. There are 34 insurers with... 40,000 variations of private health insurance policies available. So it's pretty complex. How Very many? complex. There are 40. 34 insurers and there's a total of 40,000 different policies available. Incredible. Gough Whitlam brought in uh, Medicare and John Howard has really accelerated private health insurance. So he's brought in tax benefits to prop up the private health insurance industry. And I've got an article here from the John Menadue blog where he's listing all of the problems that this is causing. And it says here, private health insurance is subsidised by Australian taxpayers at a cost of $11 billion per annum. The motor industry never got a subsidy like this. So for 2015 to 2016, the taxpayer subsidy was made up as follows. Six and a half in direct outlays in the budget for the rebate. 1.6 billion tax-free income for those who got the rebate. 
1 billion is the estimate for the benefit of exemption of taxpayers from the Medicare levy surcharge, and 2 billion for the estimated cost to taxpayers of high costs associated with private health insurance and particularly unnecessary treatments. So John Menadue says the subsidy should be abolished. So if people want private health insurance, they can have it, but without any government uh, kickbacks for doing so. And 40% of Australians earning less than $75,000 can't afford to see a dentist. And if you were to, you know, cancel those subsidies, you could put dentistry into Medicare at a cost of $6 billion. So you'd still have $5 billion left over. Yeah. Mm. Actually, as a doctor, did you see problems with people with having poor dental health causing other issues? Absolutely, absolutely. If you, yeah, it does cost quite a bit of money to go to the dentist. And if you're living week to week, then that's not in your budget and it's not likely to be in your budget for, for long enough that your teeth are going to be quite rotten and, um, yes, have lots of problems. Yeah, mm. yep. So since John Howard introduced the subsidy, premiums payable on health insurance have increased by over 150%. But at the same time, the CPI has risen by only 50%. So it's costing us a fortune and we're moving further and further away from the UK system and more and more towards the US system. And if there's a theme to this podcast, it is that that's precisely what we don't want to do in any sphere of life is follow the US system. I should um, um, slightly correct myself there because there are some schemes around for low-income earners to get dental care from hospitals and um, and there are some schemes in terms of chronic health the chronic health um, model too where you get some subsidies but I think that went out too that yeah sorry that went out yeah so it's more to do with public hospitals and getting access there yeah mm. Mm. there are government dental hospitals aren't there at That's least right. in the in the capital cities at least yeah so there are systems um, out there but I don't think they're that accessible. Yeah, I mean, you just couldn't rock up to one, Paul, and say, well, you know, I need to have my teeth looked at. They'd no. look at you and say, well, you can come back in nine months. <laughs> well, the access issue is an important one because if it's one central location, then a lot of people just won't have the, the means to perhaps travel the distance yeah. to get I, to I, it. I, I think it should be under the Medicare model. I can see some problems which might have to be like if you want to go and get your teeth whitened. I'm not sure that's a sort of, a, you know, is that a cosmetic dentistry or that? You know, there'd have to be some sort of limits, you know, to doing things. You know, that, that tooth's got a slightly crooked, so I'm going to have really expensive um, orthodontics to to help with one slightly crooked teeth. So, mm. tooth. So there'd have to be some sort of control of because I could see it blowing out. But that's doable. Yep, that's doable. So the problem at the moment is that um, private health insurers can't tell specialists what to charge. So they can charge whatever they like. But the government through Medicare can say, well, for this procedure, we're going to pay X amount and and that's it. That's exactly how it works. So yeah. there's a Medicare schedule yep. which covers all procedures yep. um, and that's all the government will pay. That's, yeah. that's all they pay now. Um, if that's um, in the um, the hospital, so it's, it's different if you're going into hospital or if you're having a primary. It's out, outpatient type thing happening. So there are some differences between that. Mm. Um, but, but if you've got a strong 
you know, like in the UK with the National Health Service, they can just dictate what the pricing is for all the services and more or less set the market rates for things. Yes. Far more so than, say, in America where, you know, the private health companies... I would have said we were between the UK and America, but Mm. I think we're much closer to the UK system because America is such an outlier in terms of health provision that, um, yeah, but we are between the two, yes. You mentioned something just before about uh, the number of specialists and GPs. Yes, well, specialists are going up, and you can understand that. I think, you know, I'm not sure how far you go back when there used to be like 80% um, primary care doctors and 20% specialists. It's certainly um, at least at 50-50 now, but I think it's even more. It's possibly 60-40. Any thoughts about why that might be the trend? Well, health provision is becoming more complex uh, in terms of our options and um, techniques and that. And no one person, no one doctor can be across all of that. So there is a definite need for specialists and, um, and super specialists as well. Um, but you wonder how far you can go. Like, I'm not sure how it is in America in, in terms of numbers, but there's got to be a sweet spot. And if you go too far, you get fragmented care. And, and it's not good for the patient because they're not getting uh, overall care of, the, of their conditions. And, and a lot of people with the ageing population have multiple problems. And it's not good for the specialist either because if you have too many specialists and they're sort of called on to do primary health care, they're actually not got skills in that area. And they might think they have, but they haven't. So if you start to get fragmented care... You, you go through what the Keating J curve, you go through the sweet spot and you're actually getting worse, worse outcomes um, and higher mortalities because things are getting missed. So you've got to get that sweet spot. So I used to think it was sort of like 50-50, but I think possibly it, it has to be a few more specialists now, yeah. But those figures themselves are alarming, mm. aren't they? And do you, do you suppose um, if the... If, if the average voter was aware of how much the government is funnelling to these private health insurance companies, they would be comfortable with it. I mean, they, as you as you suggested, they the reason they stopped funding the automotive industry or subsidising it, I should say, was because they said, you know, industry should stand on its own feet, and if it's yeah. in business. It shouldn't be subsidised by the taxpayer, and they're doing exactly that. Exactly right, and that's why I'm very much against the private health insurance rebate. Mm. It is wrong, and you know the, the numbers there say that you wouldn't say you could spend about six billion dollars on dentistry, and that leaves you with five billion dollars left over once you cut out all the the nonsense that goes into it. I honestly think the whole system, you know. You can take me a task over this if you like, deep throat. But oh, Cam, uh, Cam probably will next week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess I honestly think we should double the Medicare levy, and we should do away with private health insurance entirely. And then, as the private hospitals close up shop, the government goes in and buys them for cents in the dollar and staffs them with NHF staff. Yeah. And I think that the only private interactions that you should have should be a general practitioner and then after that everything else goes on to the NHS. Yeah, um, so historically I think we've had this dual system forever and the writing was on the wall that, you know, expenses were getting much higher for private private um, medical. And so Howard probably, if, it was, if he was going to maintain the, cat, the status quo, 
he had to step step in. But is the status quo what we really want? That's mm. that's the question. Well, see, I yeah. don't think it is. And, you know, a brief story: I fell off my bike eighteen months ago, broke my wrist, and I got taken to a private hospital. I went in there, two hundred and fifty bucks for the day. I got booked in to see a surgeon on the Tuesday. And then on the Friday, I was in hospital. It cost me 500 bucks to go into the hospital because that was the excess on my private health insurance. The anesthetist and surgery was about $5,000. I ended up getting just under two grand back from Medicare and the private health insurance people. So you're out of pocket three grand. Yeah. And I rang up Medibank. Wow. I rang up Medibank Private and I said, look, you must have made a mistake here because you've only given me $132, whereas the Medicare gave me gave me 800 bucks back. And they said, oh, we only refund you up to the scheduled fee. Mm. Yeah. And um, I said, you have got to be kidding me. And they said, no, that's, that's all we refund. So well, that sounds outrageous to me. It was um, outrageous. But what I have also learned, sorry to cut you off, that's deep throat, is that if I ever have to have surgery again and I can't get it on the public purse, I will be saying to the doctor, I need the, what do you call them, the schedule number or something like that? Yes. How much you're charging, and then I'm going to contact Medibank Private to find out how much I'm getting refunded. If I'm not getting enough refund, I'll be asking for a referral to a different surgeon. Mm. I've seen a study where they've looked at um, the what specialists charge, or, or any doctor charges, and there's a huge variation between from bulk billing, even specialist bulk billing, and there's, there's quite a few that mm. do, do bulk billing services, um, up to those who charge like twice or even more over what uh, their, their peers would be charging. And they looked at outcomes too of how patients went in terms of mortality and morbidity, and it made no difference whether you were a bulk billing one or, a, or, a, or, or, or someone that charged a lot, you know, Patients got about the same outcomes. So it's, I guess what I'm saying is you don't get better for paying more. And I think there needs to be a bit more transparency in, in what doctors are going to charge. And, they, and, and sometimes, to be fair, the doctors don't actually know until you go in there and you start fiddling around mm. <laughs> what's going on. But you can get a fair idea, and I think that's only fair. And it goes the other way too because I think a lot of... Um, primary care physicians don't go that extra yard and find out what the guy they're referring to is charging, and then then that's a bit of a a problem for the um, for their patients. So yeah, there's there's a bit of fault on both sides there, and and, and there's no reason why patients can't say, well, tell me how much is this going to cost, and then and do exactly what you have done and look up the schedule and find out. So in your um, practice, would would there be some specialists who are blacklisted because they were known to be just too expensive or others recommended because they were known to be cheap? Did you ever consider price when... Yes, because no. there are... You know, you, as a general practitioner, you know your patients and you know mm. some are dirt poor. They really are struggling week to week. Mm. And, and they're not necessarily that they haven't got a job. They're just... Just in jobs that don't they're pay on, very they're much. They're on a median income of 45,000 <laughs> right. a year. Hey, when you think about it, you, that's, you've got to watch every penny. Yep. And so for them, I would do an inordinate amount of ringing around, which would, would drive me up the wall trying to sort out to get the, the best deal. Right. Literally the best so deal. So you'd ring up some specialists and say, do you bulk 
bill. Oh, that's right. I right. beg for a bulk billing Right, service. it's a special favour sort yes. of thing or yeah. whatever. Yeah. There, there were some round, ways around it. Like mm-hmm. in, the, in the hospital system, there's um, the right to private practice mm-hmm. and the government would hold them to doing bulk billing. Um, so there are ways around it, but it, it doesn't make it easy. It's still difficult because mm. if you try and get that service and you say, well, it's in six months, but hang on, I need it in six days. <laughs> it, mm. it, 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 might, it might be available, but it's not available when you need it. Mm. So, um, yeah, um, it can be quite difficult to get what you want. There was, um, there was something else I was going to say, but I've forgotten now. No worries, it'll yeah. come back to you. Yep. We're going to quickly thank our patrons. We're going to start from the beginning, back in February 2016, and we're going to work our way to the most recent. Thank you, Sean, Alex, Janelle, Deep Throat. (laughs) Coming in. (laughs) Number four. Number four. 22nd of March 2017. (laughs) Good on you, Deep Throat. (laughs) My pleasure. I feel feel really bad for charging you a dollar for this podcast. It's all right. The beer I gave him this place. Yes. yes. <laughs> thanks, thanks for that glove. I'm enjoying that. No worries. <laughs> Thank you, John, Jason, Grant, Wayno, Ayame, Brett, Anonymous, Alison, Steve, Tony, Caitlin, Craig, Jimmy, James, Jimmy Spud. We know what you look like now, Jimmy Spud. Kane and Bronwyn, who's on board. Thanks very much, guys, for supporting the podcast. It means that we've got this great audio now and we even had a fourth microphone and a stand all ready and waiting for Deep Throat when he came in. So came in just at the right time. <laughs> yep. So really good. Thank you very much for your support. Yep. And a bit of a shout-out. We got uh, different people comment on the Facebook page or via other ways and got a nice message from a guy, Matt, in Western Australia who said he was just onto the podcast and really enjoying them and mentioned that he's a farmer. And I asked him whereabouts and um, let me just see. He responded, he's got a dairy goat farm in southwest of Western Australia. We supply fresh milk and supply cheese makers. Go on, Matthew. Like, it's amazing that you can just contact people on the (laughs) other side of the country and have some sort of relationship with... Yeah. Uh, yeah, a dairy goat farm in southwest Western Australia. So it's wonderful. Doesn't it bring something to your mind when you hear he supplies cheesemakers? Uh, it, it, <laughs> it, it does indeed. You're, you're quite right. Wait, what, what, it's, it'll be here somewhere. Let me just. You, you're dead right. Here we go. What was that? I don't know. It's too busy talking a big nose. I think it was blessed are the cheesemakers. <laughs> What's so special about the cheesemakers? Well, obviously, it's not meant to be taken literally. It refers to any manufacturers of dairy products. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, that, of course, comes from the um, Sermon on the Mount. Yep. Okay. Matthew, chapter 5. Lots of good stuff in there. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. <laughs> it's often quoted as one of the nice sort of passages of, of the Bible. It is. Yeah, with lots, you know, when people talk about good stuff. So that's in Matthew. Uh, that was, I was just reading verses 5, 7 and 9 of chapter 5. But unfortunately, if you um, go a bit further down to 27... Thou shalt not commit adultery. 28. But if I say unto you that 
that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Goodness. It's tough. I'm in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) And ex-president Jimmy Carter famously referred to that at some point and admitted that he had lusted after women who weren't his wife. Mm. Do they give a penalty? Yes. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. An eye, gee, so, that's yeah, pretty steep, isn't it? It is, yes. The next one says, And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. Blah, blah, blah. And um, the annotated Skeptic's Bible suggests that that's a reference to masturbation with your right hand. Oh, that's, okay. uh, if you look at a woman with your right eye, pluck it out. <laughs> And if you masturbate with your right hand, uh, chop that off. <laughs> Maybe you should chop the hand off first so you can't pluck the eye out. <laughs> use, your, use your left hand. Oh, no. <laughs> Go take both of them off. Uh, and it goes on to it say that... It's really frightening that I used to believe that garbage. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, you couldn't divorce your wife unless... Um, there was other reasons involved. Anyway, so the Beatitudes, as you actually go on further, is not so special after all. It's got some ugly stuff in there. So, And uh, we also got a message from Greg who said, um, Hi, guys, I want to add something to the discussion about mandatory reporting from confession of child abuse. Firstly, I'm in full support of mandatory reporting. I just want to get that out of the way. The church's complaint about it is that they are forced to break the seal of the confessional and that Catholic law doesn't allow it. As I understand it, if the priest isn't required to forgive everyone that confesses, you are required to be truly remorseful in order to receive forgiveness. Yeah, uh, so the priest isn't required to, to forgive uh, unless you're truly remorseful. So if a husband confesses every week that he's cheated on his wife, the priest can say, no, you're not forgiven until you are remorseful and stop cheating. Why can't something similar be applied to child abuse? Uh, The church could institute a rule that says, we will refuse to forgive you unless you confess to police and accept civil punishment. That would not break the seal of confession or any other laws, Catholic laws. It would simply require rules that are already in place to be applied in a different way. The fact that the church hasn't done this simple thing shows they will never give this issue the weight it deserves. The problem is, you've still got somebody has told a priest that they're abusing a kid and the priest says, OK, I'm not going to forgive you because you don't look remorseful. Well, the person still walks away and potentially exactly. commits and somebody knows that yeah. that's the case. Mm. So That's the problem. That's there the is problem. no special mm. privilege that should be offered to the Catholic Church in that regard, I think, Greg... But thanks for the message. Hmm. Well, once again, we've gone way over time. If Meredith is still on the treadmill... (laughs) (laughs) My apologies, Meredith, if you're still there. I think after all that, she can't run for another butt. Your cuff must be so sore. Yeah. If Ken hasn't sort of slammed his iPhone into the dashboard of his car in frustration at what we've said, if anybody is still listening to us after over an hour and a half... Our, our congratulations to you. <laughs> well done, guys. <laughs> Deep Throat, it's been a pleasure having you with us and not for the last time. Hopefully you'll come and join us. Yeah, you're retired as yeah, well. I'm retired, you've got the, yes. You've got the time. Yeah, I've had a wonderful time. Thank you for inviting me. Good. No problem at all. It was a pleasure having you. Very good. Thank you, dear listener. We'll, where are it now? Next week, 
uh, we'll be getting close to the date of our third anniversary, 4th of July. Mm. So probably will be around then. So our third anniversary, send us a message on our speak pipe. Go to the website, ironfistvelvetclub.com.au, click on the link, send us, you know, record a little message about how much you love us <laughs> and um, or... <laughs> Share the love. Or, or, or tell or, us how much you hate us, yeah. yeah. Or really put some skin in the game and visit our Patreon page and uh, and become a patron or um, go onto iTunes, leave a positive review, um, go onto our website and leave a testimonial if that's easier for you. And anyway, there's lots of ways to show your appreciation if you do appreciate us and otherwise... If you don't, I don't know what to say. But anyway, um, <laughs> what are you still doing here after an hour and a half? <laughs> Surely you've got something better to do. If you didn't like us, you could have turned off in the first 10 minutes. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, anyway, all right, dear listener, we'll be back next week. Bye for now. Thank you very much for listening in. Good evening. See ya. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up. Tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fizz Velvet Glove and subscribe on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from a dollar fifty Australian to I think ten dollars and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that? Less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast contribute a bit more if you don't get much contribute less but in any event you can subscribe there if you don't like the idea of a regular subscription the website has a link to a paypal donation so you could just do a one-off donation every now and again so there you go it'd be good to uh spread the word get a few more listeners and that way look if we ended up getting more listeners and more money we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.